We've been in a series called Prisoners of Hope uh, over the last few weeks where we continue to look at what it means to be shackled to the hope found in Christ. Shackled, chained to hope. Uh, We started this series because before Easter we were actually looking at a series on lament, uh, on this biblical concept of lament where we just see throughout the Bible people coming to the gut-wrenching realities of life and pouring out their souls to the Lord. The good, the bad, the ugly, just even, even people in the Psalms, in, in case you didn't know this, who are shaking their fist at God saying, where are you, God? Where are you? And we looked at that, that, that series on lament where we tackled some tough topics that maybe don't always get tackled in church, but they need to be because it's the reality of the life that we live and so we talked about lament. And then after, the, after Easter, after the big Easter celebration where we talk about Jesus rising from the dead, defeating death, setting the prisoners free. Setting the prisoners free. Then we looked at this concept. We've been looking at it from the book of Zechariah in chapter 9 of being shackled to hope. If we are going to be chained to something in this life, let's be chained to the hope found in Christ. We talked about how Christ is the, the only one really worthy of putting all of our hopes into. He's, he's the only one worthy. He's the only one who can follow through for us all other things, people, stuff, jobs, relationships. Those, those, we have hope in those things. But as we all know, as we know all too well, those things can fail us. And so we put our hope in Christ alone. In his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, Pastor Eugene Peterson, uh, who also translated the Message Bible, if you're familiar with that, he said this about hope. He said, hoping, hoping does not mean doing nothing. It's not fatalistic resignation. I love this part. He says, it means going about our assigned tasks, confident that God will provide the meaning and the conclusions. It is not compelled, hope is not compelled to work away at keeping up appearances with a bogus spirituality. Eugene Peterson has a way with words. It's the opposite of desperate and panicky manipulations of scurrying and worrying. Hope is the opposite of scurrying and worrying of anxiousness. And hoping is not dreaming. Sometimes we think of hope as just dreaming. It's like, like pie-in-the-sky type of an idea. Uh, uh, I used this phrase a few weeks ago. It's Christians have often been accused of kind of being a so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good. So heavenly-minded, so focused on what might come, what is to come, that we're no earthly good. And we, we don't want to be those people. That's not the call of Jesus. That's not the call of discipleship. So hoping is not dreaming. It's not spinning an illusion or fantasy to protect us from our boredom or our pain. That's why we sat with lament for a while. Because the reality is faith doesn't just protect you or shield you from pain. Jesus didn't promise that you would have no suffering and have no pain. And we're going to get to that a little bit today in our text from Romans 5. Jesus actually said, in this world there will be trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. It's always fascinating to me that in, that in that, and I didn't intend to talk about this, but it's a fascinating thing. He didn't say, I've overcome the trouble. He's overcome the world. He's overcome the world. 
But in this world, there will be trouble. And so hope is not, it's not spinning an illusion to protect us from boredom or pain. It means a confident, alert expectation that God will do what he said he will do. That's hope. That if God said it, if God promised it, you can hang your hat on that. That is hope. And then I love this line. It's, it is imagination put in the harness of faith. Imagination put in the harness of faith and a willingness to let God do it His way in His time. I love this long quote from Eugene Peterson. It says so much about what hope is and what hope isn't so we can clarify that the hope we're talking about is God coming through on God's promises. We're going to see that in our text today. We're going to see that in our text today. As we continue, though, in this series, Prisoners of Hope, we're exploring this hope that is found in Christ. We're going to look at the relationship a little bit between hope and shame. Hope and shame. And we're going to get into the kind of the nitty-gritty of what is the gospel all about? What is this good news that, that Jesus says is worth giving everything you've got to? It's worth selling everything to find this good news. What is the basic message of the good news found in Jesus? But we're going to look at hope and shame. Hope and shame. First, what I want to do is just talk about what is shame? Why is it so toxic, so dangerous? Why is it so damaging and powerful? And then second, we're going to walk through Paul's arguments in Romans 5 where he talks about the power of hope found in Christ. First, what is shame? Professor Brene Brown, maybe you uh, have heard of her. She's like came onto the scene with a, a TED talk that she did that's been viewed over 34 million times. People are kind of paying attention to what she was talking about to the tune of 34 million views. A, a TED talk on the topic of shame and vulnerability. Uh, she's a professor uh, at, at the University of Houston. And here's what she says about shame. She says, shame drives two big tapes, two voices. This is what shame says. Never good enough. You're never good enough. And if you can talk yourself out of that one, she says, who do you think you are is the second voice that shame offers up. You're never good enough. And if you get beyond that one, just who do you think you are? Maybe, maybe you resonate with that. Maybe you've heard those voices from time to time in your life. She says the thing to understand about shame is that it's not guilt. I really liked this distinction. She says shame is a focus on self. Guilt is a focus on behavior. Shame is I am bad. Guilt is I did something bad. She continues, how many of you, if you did something that was hurtful, would be willing to say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake? And how many of you would be willing to say that? But guilt, she says, is, so guilt is, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Shame, though, is, I'm sorry, I am a mistake. I could never do enough. I could never measure up. I'm not worthy. I'm a failure. That's the voice of shame. And I want to argue this morning that that's not the voice of God. That's never the voice of God. If you feel that, if you hear that voice saying, you're not good enough, you can't measure up. You can't do enough. You're a failure. If you've heard that voice, that's not the voice 
of God. The reason I argue this, and I think it's huge to understand, because at the beginning of it all, what we have to wrap our minds around is that there is a good God, a good creator of it all, who made you and me and everything, and when he saw what he had created, he said, it is good. And the Hebrew word that he used there, tov, Tov in Hebrew isn't just like, it's good, like a piece of pizza might be good. The Hebrew word is, it's whole, it's complete. It's exactly how I intended it to be. And God looked at you and he looked at me and he said, it is Tov. He is Tov, she is Tov. And something else happened at creation. When God created it all, he added words to the creation of humanity where he said, humanity will be created in my image, and in my likeness. There's something special about humanity. It's okay to say there's something special about human beings. From the Christian perspective, God, when he looks at each and every one of you, when he looks at everyone, whether they believe in this or not, God sees something of his image in people. Something of his image, his likeness, is in every single human being. And so when we hear that voice that says, no, actually at the core of your being, you're garbage. That's not the voice of God. Because when God sees humanity, he doesn't just see all the failures and mishaps and mistakes. He sees people as he created them to be, as he intended them to be. That's why David says, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, that God knit me together in my mother's womb with intentionality and purpose. Each person created in the image and likeness of God. In Ephesians 2, Paul says that each person is God's handiwork. God's handiwork. So again, if there's a voice that's saying like, you're not good enough, you can't measure up, you're a failure, that's not the voice of God. Certainly there may be a voice uh, that we distinguish of, of maybe the Holy Spirit convicting us, and that is that guilt side of, of the thing you did is not what God intended for you. The thing you did, that action, that behavior, that thought, but not at the core of your being, the God of the universe looking at you and saying, you are a failure for having done that. That's an important distinction. It's an important distinction to make. And I think that we, we have to make this distinction. And I think that it's, it's, it's so important. It obviously is resonating with so many people. And that's why uh, Brene Brown's books and her, her TED Talks are just being eaten up by people because this is resonating in our culture. That people feel like they can't measure up. But what if they knew that there was a God that loved them, that created them fearfully, wonderfully, with intentionality, who said, that's my son, that's my daughter, whether they know it or not. Whether they know it or not. I want to this morning, though, now that we've kind of unpacked shame and this, this kind of argument that I want to make about the core of humanity, who are we at our core? Well, we're made in God's image and likeness. We are good I want to look at Paul's argument to see kind of what Paul says about grabbing a hold then of this faith offered up in Jesus Christ, this faith that connects us back to God, connects us back to the Creator, this faith that is so vital to, to us flourishing as human beings, truly flourishing as human beings. So if you want to open up to Romans chapter 5, I want to strongly encourage you to, to actually open up and follow along. 
Uh, Romans is, is a book of the Bible that Paul makes all kinds of arguments and he takes a lot of different routes and, and it can be overwhelming. And so I think the best thing you can do is if you want to open it up or pull it up on your phone to track along in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We're mostly looking at 1 through 5, but we've got to go a little bit before and a little bit after to really see Paul's argument here about the hope found in Christ that is the most important thing you can ever grab hold of in this life. He begins, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I know that this has become a little bit of a cute phrase, but I always have to ask, what's that therefore, therefore? Okay, I know it's been like overused and I am even like, why am I even going this way? Should I just stop? It's really annoying. It's not cute anymore. But I think that we have to ask ourselves, when you see the word therefore, it's clearly pointing to something that, that Paul is building an argument. We need to know what is that therefore, therefore. Now I say uh, I'm realizing it's annoying because one time I was in Russia in 2009 and uh, the translator, I said, you know, hey, I was, I was talking to this group of people and I said, when you see the word therefore, you have to ask yourself, what's that therefore, therefore? And I looked at her to translate. And she looked back at me with this look of like, what are you even, are you still speaking English? And so I kept looking at her like, huh, it's like a joke. It's the therefore, therefore. And she just kept looking at me. And then sooner or later was like, okay, not important. Let's go, moving right along. And it just became confusing. And anyway, but I'm still using it on all of you. Lucky you. So what is Paul doing in chapter four? That he, what, what is he building on here in chapter five? In chapter 4, Paul is concluding some thoughts describing the faith of Abraham, the, the father of faith, all the way back to the beginning, the one who God called to leave his homeland. And Abraham trusted God, believed God, and went. People didn't do that back then. They stayed rooted. They stayed in their hometown, surrounded by family. And so this guy, Abraham, got the call to go, and he went, and he went, and he was one of the first people to ever leave his town, his home, and go. Go. And Abraham did it. And we, we get into who was this guy Abraham and what was his faith about. And what the, the authors of Scripture want us to know is that Abraham's faith was not about his ability to, to follow rules. What Paul really wants to let us know is that Abraham's faith was not predicated on, built on, his ability to follow rules. His faith was built on hearing the voice of God and trusting and obeying, going. If God said, do this, Abraham did it. And so Paul uses this phrase in chapter 4, in chapter 4 where he says, it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed that God would fulfill his promises and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, the main promise, the main promise that God gave to Abraham is that Abraham would be the father of many nations. He would have more descendants than the stars of the sky and the sand and the sea. That, that Abraham would be the father of many nations. But Abraham had a little bit of a problem with that because Abraham got wicked old and his wife Sarah got wicked old and they still didn't have a kid. And they tried to make their own way out of this by Abraham sleeping with the ser servant girls, and that didn't go so well. 
because there's a part of them that didn't quite trust God's plan, but they kept saying, okay, Lord, you're saying this. You're saying this is going to happen. You're saying you're going to do this, God. And so the Bible says, Paul says, that Abraham's faith was built on his ability to trust God, not on his ability not on his ability to rely on things like circumcision, not on his ability to perform religious ceremonies, but because he trusted God to fulfill his promises. Verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 18 says it this way, Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so he became the father of many nations. Paul continues, he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he promised. He was fully persuaded that God had power to do what he promised. This is why, Paul says, it was credited to him as righteousness. But then Paul keeps going, and it gets really interesting, and here's where we get the transition to chapter 5. Paul says, the words it was credited to him were written, listen to this, not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised our Lord from the dead. The faith of Abraham. His ability to believe that God would come through on his promises. Paul says that's also for us. Abraham is a sort of model of faith for us. Our ability to say, God, I don't always understand why you would do this, why you would do that. But God, I will trust in you regardless. I will trust in your plans, God. I will hang on to hope, God. I will cling to you, God, even in the midst of trials. And that, Paul says, is when faith is credited to us. When it's credited to us as righteousness. It reminds me, it reminds me of what Eugene Peterson, what I read at the beginning, where he says that we can go about in hope, in faith, we can go about our assigned tasks Confident that God will provide meaning and conclusions. We can go about our daily life, not not worrying and fretting and anxious, but we can go about our daily tasks knowing that if we're open to what God is doing, open to the idea that the God of the universe wants a relationship with us, that we can be confident that God will provide the meaning and the conclusions. So back to chapter 5 if you're still with me. Back to chapter 5. We can have a faith like Abraham. And chapter 5 then says, Therefore, because of Abraham's faith, this model of faith, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. The relationship that had been severed between God and humanity has now been fixed by Jesus in his sacrifice, not by anything anybody uh, could do, not by being good enough, following the rules enough, by knowing more than other people. No, it was what Jesus did that brought the relationship back together between God, the creator of all things, and us, humanity. Now I want to move forward and I want to pick up on these themes of hope in verses 1 through 5. First, Paul says, we boast 
we then, because of this, because the relationship has been healed, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We boast because of what God has done. It's a fascinating argument that Paul wants us to know that we, as followers of Jesus, we don't get to boast and brag about how great I am and what I have done and the things that I have accomplished and all of this. No, 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 we don't boast because, oh, this, is, this movement, this Christian thing is only for straight-A people, only for people who are at the CEO level. No, we, the only thing we boast and are confident in and brag about as people of faith is in the hope that Christ provides. It's a fascinating argument that Paul makes. And you've got to know who Paul is. That Paul, later on in, in his letter to the Philippians, he, do, he says, I've got things to brag about. I've got things to boast about. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrew, a Pharisee of Pharisees. I come from the right family line. I've got it all on point. I was protecting the Jewish faith to the point where I was rounding up Christians. I was doing it all right. And I realized all of that, he says, was garbage before knowing Jesus. That's the only thing that matters, he says. The only thing that counts is knowing Jesus. Why would somebody say this? He continues his argument in chapter 5. So he says, the only thing we boast in is hope. And then he goes to this part talking about not only so, but we glory in our sufferings. I don't know about you, but that's one of the most challenging things for me in the Bible is these folks that for some reason just like suffering. What is up with that? These people are like, hallelujah, we got persecuted again. What? You know, they get rounded up by the authorities, thrown in jail, don't ever talk about Jesus again. There's the earthquake, they get out and they go right back on the street preaching about Jesus. What are y'all thinking? Stop it. And they're like, let's do it all over again. Because suffering, suffering, we're going to rejoice in our suffering for Jesus. Paul says this, we, we glory in our sufferings because we know suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character produces hope. It's this string here that Paul ties together. And I think what's fascinating, I heard somebody say once that suffering really is being out of control. Suffering at the heart of feeling like we're suffering is when we're out of control. And I wonder then, I wonder then if, if that's why the biblical authors hold up suffering. Because when we're out of control, what do we have to do? We can't do anything on our own. We can't fix it on our own, so we have to cling to God. I mean, you hear this all the time, that this is when people's lives are changed in the deepest pit of life. When they're at their end of their rope, and they finally turn and cry out and say, Lord, I need you because I can't do it on my own. And so Paul says suffering produces that hope we're talking about. Suffering can turn our eyes to God and say, we need you. We need to trust in your promises. It's too bad that it takes suffering for us to do that. That we don't just naturally look to God first. I think if we're all honest, we look to a lot of other things before we turn to God. And that's unfortunate. We, we need as followers of Jesus, if we're going to be serious about it, to say, my following of Jesus has to affect everything I'm doing and my hope is in God, so I'm always going to look to him first. But we realize, we confess that that's hard. We confess that that's hard, but we, we need to figure out how, how can we cling to God, cling to the hope found in him and go to him first. And then Paul gets to this part about shame. Hope does not 
put us to shame. It's an interesting phrase. Hope does not put us to shame. Remember, shame is that feeling of fingers pointed at the self saying, you're a mistake. Saying maybe to someone, even if they read all of these great things about how we can have faith like Abraham and we can persevere through suffering and we can have hope that somebody might say, yeah, but not me. That's not for me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know who I am. So certainly, Paul, you're not talking to me because I'm outside of that group of people that can be saved. You don't understand. You know how many times I've heard that in my time as a pastor? Sometimes we think they're like, oh, that's not, people don't really talk that way. In working with students, I heard that a lot. Shame. Shame. People have told me I'm not good enough or the thing I did has made it so that God will never forgive me. I've had a lot of pastoral counseling meetings that are about that topic of people saying, if you knew the things I did, then there's no way you'd want me in this church. There's no way God would want me in his kingdom. But Paul said, hope, hope does not put us to shame. Does not put us to shame. Instead, Paul says, and he starts to go this route in chapter 5, and it's amazing what he says if you keep going. Hope does not put us to shame. Verse, j- jump down to verse 6. He says, you see, because just at the right time, when you were still powerless, Christ died for who? You see that word there? Christ died for the ungodly. It's a curious argument that Paul is putting forth here. It's a curious argument that, that he's saying to the world, whoever will listen, whatever, folks, if you're here today and you're going like, I don't know if God could ever save me. Paul is saying that when God looked at the world and he was like, man, it's a mess, instead of him saying, forget those people, he sent his son to die, not for the people who had it all together and had it all cleaned up, but while we were still powerless, he died for the ungodly. And he continues this argument, and he says something just in case you missed it there, just in case that wasn't good enough, just in case the church is still going like, well, that's great, but there's still some icky people out there that I'm not sure we want to come to know Jesus. Paul says, catch this, church. God demonstrates his love for us in this. God decided to show his love to all of humanity. He wanted to show us how much he loved us, how much he cared for us. He wanted to show it, and here's how he did it. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, that's the heart of the gospel. That there's no shame because when when God saw the world and saw how messed up everything was, and could have said, like, yeah, you're all, you're right. None of you are worthy. All of you, like, this was maybe a cosmic mistake. Let's start over. He could have gone that route, I suppose. After all, he's God. But instead, God saw humanity and his love wanted to pour out on humanity on all of us. And it says, while we were still sinners, when we couldn't do anything about saving ourselves, cleaning ourselves up, God sent his son to die for us. And so hope in Christ drives out shame. Friends, the last thing I want to say, if you know people, or if you yourself are, find yourself in a place this morning where you're going, I, I, 
that resonates with me, that word of I'm not good enough. I feel like there's something missing and I'm not, I don't want to use necessarily this phrase, but like living the, the best self I could be. If you know people like that or if you feel that yourself, what would it look like to turn to the one who loves you immensely, to the one who when he created you said you are good, I have a plan for your life, you are good. What would it look like to just embrace that a little bit? Maybe just a little. Maybe just look like a toe in the water if you're totally out of the water. To say, mate, what would it look like to hear a different voice in your head, not a voice saying, you will never measure up, but a voice that says, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You're my child. What would that look like for you, for me? I heard a phrase recently that somebody said that the task of people of faith is to, to, to work with God to return people to themselves. That so many of us, we, 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 we're searching for who am I, and in that searching for who am I, what am I supposed to do, we go off on the wrong direction. And we start to hear other voices. And so the job of followers of Jesus is to partner with God to return people to their true selves, to turn them back to who they are at their core, created in the image of likeness of God, created in the image and likeness of God, the one who, when he wanted to demonstrate his love, said, I know you don't have it all figured out, but I'm still coming to rescue you. I'm coming to rescue you in your weakness, not in your strength. Friends, as we turn to the Lord in prayer, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up right now if they want to come up for our closing song. I want to turn to the Lord in prayer and close uh, this morning, this time, just by giving uh, you an opportunity to maybe spend some time in, in silence with God or, or to respond to God and say, hey, I've been hearing these voices, God, and I don't believe they're from you anymore. I want to hear your voice, God. Would you turn to me, turn with me in prayer? God, thank you for the awesome opportunity and privilege to be in this place of worship and hear from your word, Lord, your word that never fails. Your word that talks about your love for us, your amazing love for us that we can't comprehend, God. This love that's almost without limits because this love, God, that you demonstrate, God, it, it acts first. It acts on our behalf and shows us how you love us when, when Lord, we, we haven't done anything. Yet you love us. God, we know that that, that 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 kind of love is radical. And if it's true, God, we want to cling to that love and the truth found in Jesus Christ who came, laid down his life for us, that we might be returned to ourselves. God, I pray for those in this room right now who, if they're hearing that voice of shame, saying, you're not good enough, you can't measure up, you are a mistake. God, that they would right now know that that voice is not from you. Jesus, that voice is not from you. So God, for, for my friends in this room right now, would your spirit speak to us clearly that we might hear that voice that says, you are my son. You are my daughter whom I love who I was willing to send my son to die for. God, if there's someone here who's never heard that voice before, may, may that voice be even louder this morning that they might turn to you, might dip their toes in the water, or God, Lord willing, 
your spirit moving, they might jump in and be overwhelmed by your love. That love that demonstrates itself by pouring yourself out to us when we don't deserve it. Thank you, God. Thank you for the people in this room. Thank you for the opportunity to gather in your name. We pray this all in the name of Jesus, the one who conquered the grave for us. Amen.